Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome to Watchmen Talk, a series of conversations with Israeli security and military experts and practitioners. And our special guest today for a series of three conversations is former Prime Minister, Defense Minister, and Chief of Staff of the Israeli Defense Forces, Ehud Barak. I am Amir Oren. Ehud, welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, um, your distinguished uh, military career started in the uh, late uh, 1950s. And uh, you were actually born when the British mandate was still uh, in then Palestine. What made you want to be a soldier? Oh, uh, you mentioned the British. My first uh, memory is the end of World War II. Uh, the British Empire celebrated after uh, 8th or 9th of May in Europe. It still continued in, in the Pacific. But by uh, July or early August, after the two uh, atom bombs on uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, it ended. So all around the empire, they sent to tell the natives that we won the empire. <laughs> Something that left huge impression on me. I was in a kibbutz. Kibbutz is a kind of communal a rural place, I know I called it um, eternal summer camp. It was like no, nothing was there. It was summer camp, permanent pa- summer Paradise. Yeah, permanent summer camp. That's exactly paradise. Yeah, it looked for a far paradise, but it was more complicated. But we knew each other, we knew everyone. We knew that there was nothing new. So you can have no memories because it's every day is the same. And then came the British. Uh, Orchestra, a group of five or six men with skirts, uh, hairy legs. But we, the, the, we, uh, we, I was three and a half years old, so we sat down kind of on, the, on the floor looking at them. The first one was the big drum. Scottish the, kilts. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, kilts. And the third one was with uh, this bizarre uh, pipe, with many pipes and... <laughs> Backpipe. Yeah, and I, I, I remember it. That my first impression from the British Empire. The second one was a, a day called the Black, Black Saturday, where the British uh, forces in, in, in Palestine, then Palestine, uh, made a raid on all the centers of the Haganah, not the extreme underground, uh, the but the Haganah, the, the main, main force, militia of the... June of 1946. Yeah, it was, yeah, June of 1946. I was four and a half, and uh, there was a curfew. No one was allowed, and they looked for hidden places. There was one in our kibbutz as well of uh, hidden weapons, and they arrested some people. But we, the kids, uh, under five, we could go out. And I'm, I have a very short father, so to be on his uh, arms was close to the ground, safely close. And then we are taken by the huge Australians or whatever with the red barrettes and wide, wide... Uh, wide brim hats. Yeah, wide brim hats. 
And they took us and they gave us uh, cookies and whatever. They, it was frightening. They were much taller than my father, but I remember them very sympathetic. The event was quite a trauma for the, the pro or pre-state pre, pre Israel. But for us, the kids, it was once again something bizarre, strange. We never so you had, saw it. So you had three choices to play music, which you did yeah. because of the bagpipes. <laughs> to become a tall Australian, which uh-huh. wasn't really an option, or to become a soldier? You know, if you, uh, as a kid, I was the furthest kind of boy from someone who would become a, a soldier. Uh, I was very introvert, introvert uh, avid reader of books, uh, not very extremely social and very weak in sports. Uh, I remember probably until the age of 12, I I couldn't even uh, reach the the wing of the basket in order to try to put it. I was quite effective in defense in football because I was kicking it. I tried to kick the ball, but it ended up on the knees of of, uh, attackers. So I was a little bit dangerous to to approach, but I was very far from, from this. And uh, during, during uh, adolescent, I was more kind of, uh, I was very good in numbers and studied very fast and was totally bored in school. So I looked for other activities and I started. And you were a sort of a MacGyver, good with hands, yeah, taking I, I apart. Was, yeah, I was very good in, in small, very bad in big movement, <laughs> very small. In, a very good in uh, fine, fine movements. So uh, my father was sure I become a scientist, of course. It, he was one of few people in the kibbutz who studied in the university and was heavily biased toward science. And Israel Brug. Yeah, tried to, to encourage me. Um, but there was a period and you know, events, external events shape your perception of what's important in life. When I was uh, five and a half, there was the war of independence. Nothing happened in our kibbutz. Unlike other kibbutzim were fought to, to do their very life against the Iraqis or against the... It's about 35 kilometers north of Tel Aviv. Yeah, we, we were north of Tel Aviv. The only event I remember from the war, one morning we heard the, uh, the mortars, some heavy, like, like thunders, we didn't know what's that. It ended up to be the mortars of an Iraqi force who uh, attacked in a neighboring kibbutz a few, few kilometers from ours called the Hamapil. They attacked a place called Kakun, which even Napoleon uh, conquered some... Uh, Not many people hundred... know, know that uh, expeditionary forces sent by Iraq yeah. participated in several yeah, yeah. of Israel's wars. Yeah, yeah. In, in, the, in the War of Independence, basically, we were uh, at the narrowest part of the future uh, state to be, to be established. And uh, the Iraqis basically came the whole way from Baghdad and reached probably eight kilometers, seven kilometers from the seashore, from cutting the newly born Israel into two. But in, in our kibbutz, nothing happened. We never see it. But it was no, no secret that something extremely dramatic happened, that changing the world. I was a kid. I was able to read the, in the 
communal dining room of the kibbutz, there were uh, newspapers. I, I could read without the dots in, at the age of five and a half, so I followed. And, and at, at home, we have a small map where, uh, helped by my father, I followed the... No radio set? Yeah, but, uh, yeah, and of course, radio set. And, but uh, even later, when I was about 10 years old, or, more, more so 13 or, 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 yeah, 12 years old. There, there were a, a period where we were teenagers looking at our older friends in the kibbutz, and they were fighting. There were period called the, how it's called, Retali- retaliation. Retaliation, right? Policy of Ben-Gurion. The, the uh, defense forces were very kind of, frustrated and not very effective after the war. It was not easy to do everything that had been done. That the whole country changed and, and to keep a, an effective army. And the, and the best young men did not stay in the yeah, army. Yeah, yeah. Best, best, best of them left, some of them for political reasons, some for other reasons. It was a kind of decline in the quality. And challenge came from terrorists, Fidayun, terrorists from... Arabs from the other side, many of them were living in what became Israel after the war. And um, there was hostility and reason and in their mind justification, and they, they made the attacks. Infi- infiltration. Yeah, infiltration and attacks on, on innocent, innocent Israelis. And uh, there was a need to, uh, to um, retaliate, and the retaliation was won by at first by a small unit of some probably 50 people that existed for less than half a year and set the direction for all, the whole uh, future much more aggressive army. It was led by Major Ariel Sharon to be later on a leading field commander and then a prime minister. Uh, and uh, among those 50 people around it, there was one from our kibbutz. All eyes was him, uh, were, were on him. Later on, after half a year, this uh, small unit called 101 became part of the first parachutist battalion, uh, Company A, uh, led by the same uh, uh, kind of frontline leader, young officer named Merard, you know, became a legendary. And uh, three of his small company were from our kibbutz. So we had our heroes were people who were there, not sitting in the kibbutz, serving the... Was it, was it a coincidence that many, perhaps most at that time, came from such settlements? Uh, one, one should understand the difference between kibbutz, which uh, is a communal uh, decision-making uh, body, a more socialist one, and a moshav, which is, again, uh, an aggregation of farms, but... Uh, privately still, owned. Privately owned, yeah. but, but nevertheless, nevertheless uh, there is some communal living, yeah. and not from cities or towns. Why was that? Uh, look, uh, already during the British mandate, which was all in all 30 years since the, since the collapse of the Ottoman Empire until the establishment of the state of Israel, only 30 years, but it was a shaping, formative period for, for the young Israel to become an embryonic state. Uh, 
The kibbutzim were the frontier people. People who were ready to live in kind of what I call permanent summer camp uh, conditions, uh, sometimes much further. Uh, the, we were just 35 kilometers from Tel Aviv, others were uh, 200 kilometers on the border. We set the contours of the, of the uh, state, state to, to be, or at least areas that were bought and, and settled. Now, because it's communal structure, that everything belongs to everyone, everyone does what he can and get what he needs or whatever, there was a central authority in every kibbutz and within the whole movement, because the operation of the kibbutz was not dependent on the individual person. Unlike Moshav, where every family has its farm, and the, the man or the woman there, they were needed. You cannot <laughs> replace them. Sharon, by Sharon, which you mentioned, came yeah, from a Moshav, will, yeah. but Harzion came from a kibbutz. No, he came from Rishpon. He, he was later on later in a kibbutz. Later yeah. in a kibbutz. Originally, he was from... from, from some village. Settlement. Yeah, but no, I want to, to uh, point to something. When there was a need to mobilize for, for the fighting in the British army against the Nazis, Moshav couldn't send people. Someone had to stay. The, the ones who sent it were the kibbutzim on one hand, and the organized work. If, if uh, the electric company, they have thousands of uh, probably 2,000 of workers, so they decided who will volunteer. To the, the same way was the kibbutz. The kibbutz decided who will volunteer, so they were ready and deployed to serve in uh, contingencies of nationally needed uh, projects. Now, we were the second generation. Second generation of many kind of pioneers have in, in on one way, and oh, and a high respect to the world-changing uh, uh, activities of their parents. But they take two elements. One, they don't want to do the same, and they still carry the, the carrier that, uh, okay, the role of a, a next generation is to change what was there. So we, without admitting it, we looked for a, a role for our own for something to follow. From very early age, for example, we had, as a kid, we already have ceremonies, rituals to, to memorize some event where in place called Tel Chaim, Far North, some few, some eight um, settlers. Jews, Jews, settlers were, were, were killed in some outpost uh, at, the, at the end of the, the country and no one came to their help except whoever was there, there was a, a sense of shame and guilt that developed or transformed into mythology of, of what happened there. And we were remember, I remember we were kids of uh, 10 and, and 11 years old, stood in a kind of U-shaped place with, uh, with uh, flags and uh, a fire, fire kind of uh, writing letters on the wall telling uh, to be ready to sacrifice your life for, for the common. <laughs> so we grew in an area where, in our kibbutz, nothing happened. Drama, great drama, you cannot ignore it, happens outside. The essence of the drama is led by few people. Few, one in the one-on-one, uh, three in company A. They were the ones that we had to 
care for short time when Davar, the, the newspaper you worked on, belonged to the Megurian movement, had a, a headline, uh, six or eight, or there was once 18 youngsters were killed in operation tonight in some, some, some Arab, uh, yeah, Arab entity around our borders. So you identify with them. They are the heroes. And when you compare it to any career in whatever, I, I know. So I found myself attracted to this. And but, but there was also another feature um, to what you say. The uh, ethos of what the Romans called Cincinnatus or Cincinnati, where uh, a farmer leaves his farm, takes not a gun, a saber, yeah. and then goes to war and goes back to, to the settlement. Yeah, yeah, it was. So, so we, it, it ended up that the kibbutzim, which altogether were never more than 2% of the population, provided probably 50% of the first-line fighters, probably more than 50% at the beginning, uh, of any uh, special forces unit, uh, one of those who shaped the, the nature of the, the emerging fighting force of the, of the state of Israel. But when you enlisted in the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, there was a period of lull. It was between 1956 and 67. Not uh, too many uh, actions um, in the border. What made you uh, go where you went? Uh -huh. No, so I didn't. I, I joined the army in 59. It was just two, uh, three years after 56. And at the time, it still seemed to be the clouds were, are still very dark, hanging over the horizon, and uh, you have to be there. And I thought of becoming a pilot, fighter pilot. When I was a kid, as a kid, during the War of Independence, there was <laughs> behind our kibbutz, in the middle of place of some Shavim and, and kibbutzim, uh, there was a flat area with a grass where Messerschmitt, there were boats from <laughs> Slovakia, uh, German Messerschmitt were landing. So they were passing over my parents' uh, hut or whatever, <laughs> probably 30 meters. So you could see every, so I say that that's what fits me. <laughs> and all around there were the builders of the Air Force in a place called Kfar uh, Chaim, which is uh, 50 meters from our kibbutz, there was Agassi. And the other side of the kibbutz, another kibbutz from another movement, the one that was more leftist than Marbarot. Yeah, every, every small stream has its kibbutzi. So the communist kind of like, of not, not communist, but supporters of Stalin, uh, they were there, and they had Fuhrman and, uh, and Ohad. And in Kfar Vitkin, there were several of them, Ran Pecker and, and uh, Livnat and uh, Uri Talmo. So they were surrounded by these people. They were all young, uh, older than me, but eight to, to three years older. Yeah, about eight to three years older. And they were at the, this cutting edge force. So I came, but I was uh, what we call the... Fertile of in Yiddish, a quarter of a of a chicken. It's very small. I, I still grew up some eight centimeters in the army and start to shave when I ended officer. It school. sounds it sounds like Leo Messi's uh, story. Yeah, uh, yeah, but I was not. No, he was very good in in uh, in football. I was very I was very bad in everything, and so they rejected me. They didn't take me. 
And I found myself thrown into the most kind of, uh, the, the least place that I would love to be. But in other armies, this sort of unit, Panzer Grenadier, or in uh, Israel, mm. the armored infantry, is one of the best. It was yeah, only in, in Israel. Israel. It was something that dragged behind. You don't shoot far. You cannot fly. You, you are not going to go behind the back of uh, some uh, enemy guy. You support the assault forces. Yeah, and that's, it's the, the worst thing. So it happened after some, some half a year I moved uh, into another unit. I just met a friend. The system was still the same, that a friend brings a friend. Like uh, 10 years earlier when 101 and the company A was established in the Parashutis. So I was approached by a friend of mine, someone that mobilized a few months before me, and asked me, how is your, uh, your service? I said, it's tough, hard and boring. He asked me, do you want to... to join a reconnaissance unit. It has an Israeli name, Sayeret. I told him, what kind of sir? There were only two such uh, units. One belonged to parachutists, and the other, belong, the other one was belong, belonged to the uh, infantry named Golani. Uh, he said, no, no, it's a different Sayeret. It's the Sayeret of the uh, general headquarters. I never heard the name. I never heard the name. I asked him, what are they doing? <laughs> he told me, I can't tell you. So I went to friends who were in uh, other, uh, uh, joined the military a year ahead of me, and we were part of band of bandits, kind of youngsters who were kind of not disciplined and, and going on the, on the thin line between the law and illegal. So it's like, not like Henry V's Band of Brothers, it's a Band of Bandits. Yeah, yeah, Band of Bandits. Uh, we're a group together. We were protected by the, the code of the kibbutz was that even if you found someone of us making something wrong, you don't give him to the police. So you punish him another way. You like, mean shoplifting or, or uh, taking cars? I, I, cars was, on. I was... I was uh, I developed a way to open locks, to pick locks uh, by... Uh, I heard that someone in another kibbutz is doing it, so I, I knew that it could be done. So I started to cut uh, locks to see what's in and to understand, and then I produced the, the tools to open it. And once I could open, I felt the king of the kibbutz. It's a, I, I, I believe the same... That's the same feeling that in modern time, hackers who entered into a system of a, of a big organization feel that you are the king here. Everything, everything belongs to everyone, but everything is, everything is protected by locks, basically. But if I want a cold uh, watermelon, so I would go, and we, have, we had uh, commercial refrigerators to, to keep the, the watermelon before it. So I would uh, pick it, I take, I close it, no one can even know, but I have. Or we wanted to take a tractor from the garage to drive in the region. So we come at uh, Saturday noon, the band of bandits, and I would be the one who opens the 
garage, we took a tractor, we closed it. No one sees. When we come back, we send someone to see that the area is empty, bring it back close. This, now, what? in order to enjoy, we had to have weapons also, like you make with Cincinnati. So we, I would, uh, we go the evening before, Friday night, two uh, of the bandits uh, kind of protect me, and I would open the armor of the kibbutz, and we took several several uh, rifles and some munition and go. And in order to have our munition, not to be dependent on the heavy to law. So we went, there was, when Israel was 10 years old, there was a major national exhibition of the achievements, including them, the Israeli military in the, the, first, the first decade. They have, they have the Uzi there. So two of the bandits protect, and I grab an Uzi from the exhibition, put it. So when it was found in the kibbutz, there was a big scandal, but they decided just to punish us. But what you described is actually what a... Juvenile, juvenile delinquency. Yes, but but what you describe is actually what a stealth reconnaissance unit, like the one you headed later, uh, has to do without, without the hosts knowing that you were there. Yeah, yeah. So somehow the, the reason that they approached me was that I was, my only claim to fame among the kibbutzim in the area was that I can be close. And it's true that they, they, these guys came to interview me whether I fit into, there were the, the two officers, one was with, from one of one, uh, both of them were, veterans of Meir Zion. One was an officer in a 101 unit, and the other was a soldier in um, uh, Chabalah, explosive expert from Company A of Meir Zion. And they interviewed me. The first thing they asked, is it true you can pick? Uh, I said, yeah. You want to see? I can pick the local from your Jerica, the jeep. Uh, so they asked me a few several things and say, okay, you will hear from us. And then the second time was that I was invited to meet on Saturday morning the commander of this uh, unit that I didn't know anything about and uh, in his private residence in Tzahala, the place where officers live. And he to- took a, a topographic map, one to 100,000 of Jerusalem, uh, put two notes, some eight kilometers from each other of area that he knew. He was from Jerusalem uh, all his life. He asked me, describe me what you can see. So he asked whether I uh, know to navigate. Uh, and I knew because as a kids, once again, we joined the Gadna, the, the paramilitary. So, so El Barak, we have so, to stop here for yeah. a minute. And um, this is obviously the strangest audition ever for a future Mm. commander of this unit, a future chief of staff, and a future prime minister of Israel. So we will have a break, and we hope you all join us for the second part of our conversation with retired general, retired defense minister and prime minister, now the elder statesman of Israel, now that the generation identified with Shimon Peres is gone, Ehud Barak. Thank you for the time being, and we will return. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.